HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman who I admire, and in this case, I've admired this woman for decade or more, Dominique Crenn. Dominique is probably best known, to those of you listening, as a three-star Michelin chef who has a restaurant atelier Crenn in San Francisco, but those of us who look a little deeper also know her as a humanist, an activist, and a warrior. So, Dominique, welcome. Thank you for having me. So nice seeing you. It's so, so good to see you. I'm actually sitting with the most extraordinary view in not Atelier Crenn, but Atelier Home. Atelier (laughs) Home, yeah. Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. So the story of your origins, which began with being adopted at 18 months, is one of the things that opens the Netflix show that featured you. And I'm fascinated by the way you describe being an adoptee as having a shadow life. Right. And I'm wondering, like, what does that mean to you? For me, I'm, I'm looking at, the, at my adoption as a gift. I was given, I would say, perhaps a second chance. So uh, very much uh, through my life, I never took for granted that moment. And to be able to look at uh, two incredible people and, and they choose me 
because they wanted to give me love and show me the world. And I want to walk into this life to make sure that I use that platform also to maybe bring people some gift, a giving and giving back. It's amazing. You know, I always say to my team and to my close friends, we are on earth, we are guests. And who are we to not give back? I think that notion of being guests is deeply imbued in the food that you do as well. Absolutely. So the food where you honor Native American traditions. Right. Can you talk about how that notion of being a guest is influencing your food? So when I was a little girl, I used to go to the, my grandmother's garden, you know, every day and have fun, you know, pick up things, tomato, whatever. But one day I did pick up a tomato and I, I stopped and I looked at the tomato and then I looked at the vine of the tomato. You know, where did that come from? From the soil. And I'm, then I realized is putting this tomato in my mouth is I'm communing with nature. So nature is giving us beauty and why are we not giving back to nature? So it's, that notion has been imprinted in my little brain for a long time. <laughs> I think you also said that there's an immediacy, like the shock of biting into that incredible tomato and having it sort of go ping. Yes, the layer of life. You often talk about how your food is based on memories and mm -hmm. you draw from your own memories. Yeah. And it's interesting how your memories might intersect with somebody else's memories. Absolutely. They're not the same, no, but they connect. They connect, yeah. Are there memories that are quiet memories? You know, there are the ones that you've claimed, like, you know, you pull the potato out of the ground. It had great meaning because it was right. your family farm and the feeling of the sea and being right. so connected to the sea. Right. But are there are quieter memories that you reach to when you're building your menus? Yeah, I mean, the way that, you know, we are cooking in Atelier Crane and then suddenly someone is connecting that show you that I think when you cook from the inside of yourself, from your heart, and even if you don't have the same experience as others, that love and that passion and that authenticity that you have within yourself always connect with others. I mean, I had this uh, guest the other day that uh, is from Russia, and she was crying eating one of the dishes. And she said, it just took me back to something that my grandmother used to do. And it's, it has nothing to do with Russian food. You know, the, the calmness and the, the time of reflection of me sitting on the dune in, in Brittany by myself and looking at the ocean and, and thinking about uh, the loss of my father, it's very much into the menu and the feeling of it. Or... Uh, at one point, for over a year, um, I was very uh, vulnerable about the loss of a little girl called Hannah that passed away of leukemia at the age of 11, and I was friends with her and hang out with her, and it just it really like took a lot of me through that menus also. So my menus, I think, in 2012 was very emotional, and I didn't really talk about it, but just everything was coming out was extremely emotional. So I think I'm touched by everything that's happening in my life and my surrounding, and even in the world, you know. I've got to be careful sometimes, those, those silent memories that could be 
Because you're, you're quite transparent, I think, is what you're saying. Like yeah. the, the membrane between you and the world yeah. is thin, which is what makes the cooking so beautiful, right. but it's also powerful inside of you. It's, I mean, I have to tell you that last night, and it's, it's been in my head, and it has nothing to do with food, but I was watching this documentary taking place in uh, the genocide of thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people in Kiev mm. in, during the Second World War. Mm. And that notion about how people can kill others. And it's just like humanity is like, who are we as you? And if we can use food to bring back the humanity together, I'm up for that challenge right now. <laughs> I'd love to go back to that notion of sitting on the dune in Brittany and the sadness and the feeling you had with your father gone. How would you translate that feeling into the poetry that then's translated into the menu? You know, when you, when you lose a parent or someone that is very close to you, often people have a lot of sadness, which is totally understandable. So I, I try to also understand that it was his time to go. Mm-hmm. But I remember the grand memories that I had with him. So I don't want to bring too much sadness to my menu, but I think is bringing back the reflection that I had with my father, what he taught me, the philosophy, the respect, the humanity, the, the inclusivity, being vulnerable. So it's everything go into the menu. And, and what would that be in a, in a dish, let's say? Like those ideas, or is it too hard to no, back? No, 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 no. We have um, uh, diabolone that we have on the menu. It's uh, very much, you know, the idea when um, my dad and I used to go to La Crie, which is the three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning market with the fisherman. But I remember that bringing Cito um, Zabalone alive, and my dad used to tell me, you know, it's they are a part of our ecosystem. And yes, we are going to, eat them but we have to celebrate them you know and remember they also have a life in 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 the water in the ocean and and you and I don't really know a lot about it so let's celebrate and and then the time in 2012 with Hannah and being really brought into someone's life and world it sounds like who wasn't your exact family no which is extraordinary to be so involved how did you meet her so I was doing a TED talk in San Francisco and a sister was there, and after the talk, she came up to me and asked me if I was willing to spend some time with a sister, because she looked up to me, apparently. And what we had in common, uh, me and uh, Anna, Hannah and I, is Anna was an incredible uh, poet. She, she was writing poetry. At a very young age, as I think that I had read that you started writing poetry at four years old. So, well, I don't know if it was perfectly poetry. <laughs> I was writing things, probably. Yeah, I think it's. It was. Uh, I was in my own world. I always felt that I, I had my own world, imaginary world, you know. And so I, I wrote a lot of. It was a lot about uh, animals and natures and people. Also, the poetry that I wrote through the years was never uh, aggressive. It was reflective. I always believed that words matters, and the way that you use language matters also. So I just want people to understand that a word is something that you always have to look at when you use it, and it could go both ways. It could be negative or positive, and let's bring more positivity in this world. 
It would be a better world. <laughs> so your menu is poetry. Poetry, yeah. Do you begin the menu with the poetry or do you begin in the kitchen? I never begin in the kitchen. No. Never. It, really? it's, it's always been uh, poetry first. The poetry and the dishes kind of came together, but I, I never create in the kitchen. Where do you create? Well, I mean, last time that I create, I was with my R&D chef, Jean-Christophe, and we were walking the street in Paris, and we were coming back from uh, this amazing restaurant, my friend David Toutain in Paris, and we were just walking back, looking around, and I was just like, we have to create this dish. We were looking at the architecture, and we were looking at people walking down the street, and it was cold, and... And this is how we created the dish. What was the dish? Um, it's a dish uh, that will reflect the nuances of California. For wh where we are in the north part of California, in San Francisco, um, alliums is all over, all around you. The sea is all around you. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, onions, alliums, flowers, wild herbs and grain. And there's a lot of things like that. And so California is a beautiful us. Uh, Beautiful place, the west part of the United States, but a lot of history. It was about over 300 tribe, you know, Native American that were there. And why? Because of the bounty of the food and uh, the spirituality of California is great. And I was talking to my farmer the other day and to really uh, go back to find Native American plan and We have a lot of history there, you know. And I'm going, you know, maybe to a culture that hasn't been celebrated, which needs to be celebrated. Especially in, in nowadays with, you know, I, I met, I was not in California, but I was in Norway uh, last year. And I met native indigenous people and native Norwegian and, and talking about, you know, with the, you know, nature and agriculture and all that. And it was so uh, fascinating that they knew what the answer could be. Native American also. I'm reading a lot about, you know, their philosophy and all that. And, and I want to go back to their voice, what they could give us as also as a gift. And we need to look at that. We're living in a world of instant gratification where everything is in front of us. But let's go back to the beginning of time. We might find some answer that will help us to perhaps uh, look at things better. That's also interesting to me because I think it's not so well recorded. Right. So it takes work, it takes attention, right. and it takes real care and digging to find that. It also takes respect because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reading some book and, and I want to know more and it's fascinating to me. And I think it's going back to perhaps my adoption, understanding also uh, my DNA that is not all French, it's all over the place. Um, I do have some DNA that perhaps are indigenous. It's like I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm just feeling super connected to that. So um, it's it's really humbling yourself about maybe where you come from and who you are and really celebrating those people. And I hope that we can give them what they deserve. I know that you, you had done the DNA test, which is how you yeah, um, have, <laughs> have some idea of what's in, what's in there. Berber, North African 
ingenious from uh, indigenous people from Malta, Italian. Oh my goodness. I'm Italian, <laughs> some Italian, French, German, uh, Norwegian, Scandinavian, but mostly North, uh, North Africa. And the last one, you know, like every year, the, I think some DNA coming back. At one point I was, it was a little bit of DNA from Siberia. Okay. Which uh, from the Yakub, which is a tribe, which is interesting. Now it's going back to Egyptian. Do you feel in any way that these cultures move through you and sort of without you mediating between you and the food, you're bringing those cultures to life? I don't know. I think I, I, I'm, uh, the way that I'm bringing food is I'm, I'm being free. I'm a free human in my way of cooking. And so there is not like, oh, she's cooking just French. Food, for me, it's a free way of expressing yourself. I think when you became a Michelin star chef or two Michelin star, people were like, where did she come from? But in fact, I mean, you'd been cooking for such a long time. You know, when you began, you were untrained. 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 Monsieur Jeremiah <laughs> I know. I, the 90s. Hello. <laughs> Thinking about you in that kitchen just really made me laugh. But you enjoyed working for Jeremiah at Stars. Amazing, yes. I liked his approach. It's his respect for the people that were was working with him, but also the, the respect for the ingredient. And obviously, you know, having him, the chef, Hachepanis, before that, just kind of bring a different way of thinking about cooking. And, you know, every day there was a different menus. And, and he was kind and he was... It was funny, too. When you look back at the cook that you were then, which un, untrained but with fierce instincts, right. and having watched your mother, who was a great cook and all that, and you look at through a trajectory you know, through San Francisco, Jakarta, Los Angeles, how would you say that your style evolved from back then to today? Well, I think the, the the way that I think my style evolved is that I, when I start to be free about the things that I wanted to put on the plate, I use uh, the ingredient as a brush or as a pen. To it's like it was a language for me, and I also obviously was mindful about what comes together. Then I think through the years is now I would say less is more. And it's not about the quantity, but it's about, you know, the quality and, and the narrative that I want to say to to the world. And it's not about technique. You know, people say, well, you got to be technical and respect the craft and you got to do this. And I'm like, no, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, be conscious about, you know, when you cook, there is, there is a lot of responsibility in a way of cooking nowadays, you know. Well, I, I think that, it's so easy to criticize. I mean, there's so many things that people can pick on in a dish yeah. without understanding the big picture of either what someone was trying to say overall or how right. hard people are working or just it's their life and craft. And it's important to be responsible. Responsible. And also it's important to have humility and, 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 and take your ego out of it and realize that you're not better than others, but they're not better than you. <laughs> Um, that's from my dad. That puts me in the mind of when you, you've won best female chef in the world, in the world's, world's 50 best. Yeah, best right. And that is both an extraordinary title and an incredibly irritating one. Right. It's so complex, you know. So 
no, I'm not the best. You know, using that word best and in our industry or number one, it's just we becoming a a sport. It's a little bit difficult for me to see that. I think what uh, when I when I talk to to the people at Fifty Best and I respect them. A lot of work to be done still. And for me, uh, and I told them right away. For me, it was it was an um, uh, it was a platform that was giving to me to be able to inspire young women out there that this is not just a man world. You could go there and you are able to become one of the best in your field. So taking out the word female and just, you know, giving them the ability to be as good as others. And I think that's what was important to me. Um, I, I'm not going to call you a female journalist, right? Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think we need to uh, forget about gender a little bit and look at people for who they are and the skill that they bring into the table. I always think that different voices at the table always bring amazing uh, outcome. And I think we need to continue to do that. Uh, if you have the same color and the same way of thinking, I don't think you're going to go anywhere. You need to bring uh, spices. And, <laughs> and I think if we can do that. And so at the table, it should be, everybody should be at the table. Men, women, you know, transgender, people from different religion, whatever. Let's come together because food is really the vehicle of bringing people together. And if we bring ideas together, then I think we can create amazing dishes. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Chef Dominique Kren. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified Label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, a special edition in Los Angeles with Chef Dominique Kren. So now when you were in Jakarta, you had an all-female kitchen. Correct. And I think there were 11 uh, women on the team. Some, we were some, 13. 13. With me. Okay. <laughs> you count? 12, yes. Oh, yes. Because we had that number. Uh, yes. Oh, tr- why is 13 a special number? In, I, I think it's in, a very incredible uh, lucky number. Some people can look at it differently. I'm, I'm curious what that was like for you. First of all, it was really far. And working for a hotel, and I think there were some surprises along the way of 
you know, who you're working for and what you had signed up for. Um, but I'm interested in hiring an all-female team, and I think it was their idea. It was their it was idea, their ideas, right? Yeah. You didn't say, hey, I want to come and get yeah, an all-female yeah. team. But yeah. once you were there, and you sort of accepted that, took it on, yes. and then made it your own in a very special way. I'd just love you to talk about that. Well, I think at, at, at the beginning is, is I was in San Francisco, and, and I was getting some traction, and people I was talking to, a lot of people, and, you know, and, I, and I felt that I was, not, I was not there yet, and I need to uh, travel a little bit more the world and, and to learn Living more about others, and Jakarta was very interesting to me. Indonesia, Muslim country, uh, not very good with women at the time. And then when I got there, is women in the kitchen were not really cook. They were often in the back of the kitchen peeling potato or not really seen. And so I'm like, okay. I want to find them, talk to them, and give them a platform maybe that we can all do that together. And what I realized is that a lot of young women apply. And the first thing, you know, it was the same narrative. We've we never been able to be in the kitchen as cook, you know, but we want to cook. We, we learn from a grandmother and from mother, and we, we have this passion, and we want to have a chance. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> you're knocking at the right door, yeah, because <laughs> I, I need some cook. And so um, that was in 1997. Okay. Until today, I received letters Amazing letters. I, I'm gonna like have tears in my eyes and how inspiring that time. And when the last one was uh, this, uh, she's a chef of an Italian restaurant in 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 Indonesia. It's like, look where I am, chef. I am a chef now, and I run my restaurant, and it's because of you, and you give us a chance. And I was just like, oh, but they gave me so much more. I mean, they taught me so much about humility about uh, strength, about courage. It must have been hard for them, having been rejected so often, to then even volunteer right. you know, to come to you right. and, and say, will you hire me? Yes, and they were rejected in their own country. I'm going to give you another anecdote that uh, there was just right before we were uh, opening the restaurant, we worked very hard to do, and, and I thought it would be nice to take them out to have a nice dinner together. And so I made this reservation in a nice hotel. And they had my name. And so, oh, coming to the Intercontinental Hotel, great. I walked there with my team. And the, the manager took me on the side and said, I know you have a reservation, but they are Indonesian. Are you eating with them? And I'm like, yes, I am eating with them. And they are my team. And I'm paying for it. So I want you to treat them the way you will treat me. And it was just kind of mind-blowing to me. I was like, what's going on? And even my team said, no, chef, it's okay. We, we can go on this, you know, get some food on this. No, we are celebrating you tonight. And that was hard for me to see that. How long were you in Jakarta? Well, I had a, so I had a two-year contract. And I didn't go through those two years because in 1998, the civil war happened. So I was there less than a year. and What happened? Well, so um, the people of Indonesia started to uh, rebel against the Soarto uh, family, which was uh, in power. 
the Intercontinental Hotel was owned by the Soharto family, <laughs> part of it, I, th- I think the brother or something like that. So the hotel was Target first. And I re- realized it was like in the winter 1997, 90, you know, up to 98. And I wanted to go out for Christmas and we couldn't go out and the army was around the hotel and I was like, what's going on? So uh, basically they sent back every expat, the the kids and the woman first and I left. When you first left San Francisco, as you said, to go to Jakarta, you were on a trajectory that would have been your own restaurant, that right. would have been you know, solidifying your place and yet a year in Jakarta and then eight years tucked away in a country club. Right. Did it benefit you being tucked away? Yes. And I think you have to realize that I want to say to, you know, all those young cooks like, oh, I want my own restaurant and all that. But you have to realize just work for maybe others and and see the world out there, you know, and it's not about striking your ego every five seconds because you think you have your own restaurant. It's about learning maybe for me it was learning and and learning things that I didn't know and and connecting with others and I mean you, you walk into those places people have been working there for 20 25 years it's pretty amazing and then you have to connect with them and I think I changed a lot of things at the country club because until today people are still talking about it it's like oh when you were out there it was amazing and people were like so you know, happy to have you, and we miss you. I mean, like, so it's nice. It's not. Nice it's nice to hear that. I, it was not just sandwiches and hamburger. Okay. Oh my gosh, you said the word sandwich. <laughs> I've been dying to ask you the sandwich uh, question yes. because you believe that American sandwiches are a tragedy, and uh, one I mean, of your one of your first uh, culinary experiences, if we can call it that, was making sandwiches at summer camp. Yes. And so I just want to know, like, what is the perfect sandwich and why have we got it so wrong? All right. So I'm not saying anything about, I, I, I'm not putting down any uh, uh, American sandwiches. They are not my liking. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> uh, I feel that they need, there is no soul to it sometimes. It's like when you make a sandwich, it's like for me, when I remember I made the sandwiches the first time at a tennis club in France and also in camp. And it was about the bread, where the bread was coming from, from the baker, you know, and then you have the ingredient and then you have all the ingredient in front of you. It doesn't take a lot. Beautiful bucket, the butter that is made from this incredible farm, just put the butter, maybe a slice of like, saucisson or ham, smoked ham, or it could be just vegetable or tomato, a little bit of sea salt. How amazing is that? I just revealed perhaps one of the very few, 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 few prejudices you have in food, but in the same way that you don't believe in prejudice at all with humans, you yeah. don't believe in prejudice in food. No, I don't. As a fundamental. No, as right. a fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. I just want people to think before they make something. Okay. Yeah. So there are foods that people don't like or they sort of reject that you want them to rethink right and what is the root topic why people rejected that you remember it's like this notion during the first world war and there's a lot of like history to that and people saying it's a this is tragic time and it's for the poor and all that it's like no food is food like you know produce vegetable is vegetable it's like rutabaga is amazing it's you wrap them in a sea salt crust, you bake them in the oven, 
you you crack the sea salt crust and you just cut them out. You make a little bourbon with it and you serve that. Amazing. Maybe add a little bit of seaweed in your bourbon and just eat with the rutabaga. It's the earth and the sea together. In the restaurant, you are very vegetable focused and very sea focused. Right. You're also a guardian of the well, the earth and the waters, the planet. And I wonder, as you're serving these beautiful ingredients, how you're thinking about the planet and how you can contribute to sort of a change in mindset. Or So by 2055, the sea will have more plastic than fish? Correct. How does that make you think about your menu? I will have to think differently. You know, like right now, I'm... Um, doing more vegetable than seafood. But also, we I don't want to go to 2055 and think that there's more plastic. What I want to do right now is to make sure that we don't use plastic, that plastic is a way, that plastic is, you know, something, an invention that shouldn't have never been invented. So I'm trying to educate people and perhaps change their behavior. And to do that is not to create new new innovation, it's maybe to use what we have and to recycle and upcycle. So like the three restaurants, I think this year will be, uh, we're getting um, um, basically a certificate of like no waste and plastic free by this year. When you think about it, when cr- uh, plastic was created in what, in the 70s? I imagine it's before, but yeah, maybe but, before. It's, but it's not. It's it not hasn't that old. Been there forever. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were restaurants before, right? There was restaurants before, you know, long time before. So we use a lot of glass. We being very creative, you know. I think when we when things that take away from you, you become so much more creative. But that creativity also become so much more sustainable than before. And what's a good example of that? Well, I mean, first, we don't have plastic cup is. We eliminating everything, which is great. We are developing and trying to create something else, you know. So it sparked also with the bookie, the book, the boutique crane is going to open in 2020 in the summer. The way we're building the book, the boutique crane is with we upcycling all the trash. So where's the trash? Is it in the walls? Is it insulation? Um, it's basically the architecture of it. Everything is made with trash. Except, you know, the kitchen will be um, made with, uh, obviously, um, stainless steel and all that, but everything else. And it's pretty crazy. But it's so, like, it feels so good. I wonder if it brings you back in any way to your mother and growing up, because... At least at Food & Wine, we used to always say, if we could treat food the way that French housewives did, then we would be much more efficient in our cooking and much less wasteful because those French women never wasted anything. Nothing. My mom never wasted anything. And it just, everything was used. Everything from, you know, cooking the rabbit stew or or fish or even eggs, you know, it's just nothing like if you if you make something, if we just use the, the, the egg yolk, she will use the white to make maybe some chocolate mousse. You know, you know, like everything was like used, you know, it's like and the the fridge was always full, yet it was the perishable were always eaten on time. We never throw anything out. Old. We have a lot of program um, within the Crane Dining Group, and this is one of the, the things that we do is uh, the team sign up to go harvest. 
the connection with the farm and walking all day and and it just makes so much difference when they come back to the kitchen and they realize like wow especially if there is a stagiaire that come or someone that is want to work with us and and they see them you know kind of not taking care I mean my team is like on them like, like what are you doing what did you put in the trash like it's interesting they're conscious you know I think being curious and being conscious of what you do with your hand it's it goes a long way so I think curiosity is the thing that has been the through line of right. your life correct but I feel like you're just fearless you've Taken, you've taken so many leaps into the unknown. You were just born that way. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I think fear is prison. And if you let your fear uh, overcome and overwhelm you in everything, you can't, you can't do anything, you know? But did you ever have to, like, scrounge around to find the key to get out of that fear prison and then you're like, I'm never going to go back? No. Or you just, no. No, it was, uh, you know, it come from my dad. Uh, you know, when my dad taught me about the story, my dad was one of the youngest men that went to the resistance at the age of 14, 15. And I remember, he's like, you know, Dom, we were in the part of France where it was free France, and on the other side was the occupied France. I didn't have a choice. Freedom was uh, the only thing that I wanted to do. And, you know, when the German tried to come and find me and my dog uh, jumped between, he was shot at, my dad was shot at. And and the dog, you know, heard, the, sh the I guess, the gun go off and he went between the bullet and my dad and, my, and he saved my dad's life and the dog died. And obviously he escaped and it's like at that moment, it's like there's no more fear in life. It's about the doing the right thing for yourself and for others. That was crazy. That was crazy. Yeah. I think it's one thing to hear that story, and there's another thing to have it so a part of every cell of your body right. that you leave France, you know, having been rejected by cooking schools and saying, fine, I'm just going to go to San Francisco. Right. It's like, okay, you don't want me, fine. But it's also... There is also other things, you know, France is very bureaucratic and it's, and I love my country. But I think my personality is a personality of, of, of freedom, of I need to go out there and just, I need to do things. And it doesn't mean that my country is not great. It's just, I didn't f feel that I was feeding. Then I came to America and said, okay. Was it hard to leave your family behind because you're so close to your brother and yeah, it was it was uh, it was kind of a surreal. I remember I was at uh, my brother's wedding in uh, Brittany, and the next day I was taking the train from Quimper to Paris. Then I had to get on the plane in Paris. And I remember I was having in my head this image of me getting into the train and seeing my mom and my dad and my brother looking at me and me waving to them, I'm, I'll be back soon, And but like I could feel the sadness. And it took me a lot of courage to do that. But I knew that was the right thing for me, and I think they knew that my happiness was number one. 
And if I was happy to do that, they would let me fly away. That's true love. Again, that's true love. It's the. It's not like I never. I, I didn't worry them, but that's true love. <laughs> well, your sort of love of the world and knowing that you're going to put something with love in it also seems like such a strong theme. This past year, you confronted breast cancer you had a breast cancer diagnosis in may and i feel like you confronted that with superficially from the outside um without great fear what what was your feeling when you got that diagnosis well i had to i think it was it was the day before my birthday that i that i found a lump i just knew something was not right because it just and i and then i said to like my body was very tired and weak and and I thought I was invincible, like I was. You were invincible. Invincible yeah. always, because I thought that my dad was invincible too. But, and I came back. I was I was traveling through. Uh, I think it was before I was in um, in Italy. Then I was in New York when I found that out, and hmm. went to see the doctor and biopsy after biopsy. And I remember he called me up. And he's, and he's like, well, I got the results. And I was just like, okay, just shoot it to me. And he's like, well, um, you know why I didn't call you? Because we needed to do some more, you know, a test. And um, what do you have? It's called um, invasive, invasive triple negative cancer. So the C word came in and I say, okay, cancer. And I did the, the things that I asked him, say. I am in trouble, and he said, no, there is a way to uh, fight this, and it's extremely aggressive, and you are stage two. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I had, you know, other way maybe of, of thinking about how I was going to go uh, about it, because it was, there is not a lot of research about this cancer, by the way. It's this starting right now. And um, and then I don't, I'm not in the check box of like who's supposed to get it because I had nothing to do with what usually people, uh, who do people get it? I didn't have the BRCA gene. Um, I'm not African-American. and But I don't know anything about also my birth mother. So I, when I did more like the traditional chemotherapy, but obviously because it's such an aggressive cancer, they gave me the most aggressive chemo treatment, 16. Once a week, going there and, and being uh, this incredible uh, uh, community of friends that just lift me up and we're singing, dancing, and I think I wanted to be outspoken because it was not just about me, it was about uh, a lot of people that I talked to that uh, were going through the same thing and... And there is a, a, a shame attached to it. Like when people say cancer, people suddenly are like, oh, you have cancer. Oh, you might die. You feel a little bit projected. It's like, no, don't reject me. I'm here. Yes, I do have this, but guess what? I'm going to beat it and, and it's going to be better. And so also bring, you know, this voice to others and to like inspire others. Like the last two months was hard. I thought I was going to... I thought I was not going to make it. It was so, so hard on me, my body. Because you were physically sick from the, yeah, the drugs. The drugs and you also, it's like you facing yourself, literally. 
nobody matters around you, it's yourself. And you're facing yourself and the layer of yourself appealing in front of you. And then you wake up in the morning and you don't even know who you're looking at. You have to find, you have really have to find a strength within yourself and understand who you are. And he allowed me to really look inside of me and who I am. And um, were you surprised at all? Did Were there revelations that came from being that close you to you that you didn't have to see before? Yeah, I um, have to slow down and I'm not invincible and uh, I have to have the humility of to know that I can't just run around and, and think that it's and not care about myself or the people that I love or, or the two little girl that are five and a half and turning six in May, you know, it's just like, it's just like, it's just bringing you back of what matters. I, I had read that you were intending to work, work, work. Oh, I did. I still it. You did you yeah, the yeah. whole time? Yeah, the whole time, but I was mostly sometime at home and they had 10,000 email and phone calls. Like, oh, chef, okay. That's like, I've, I was more present, I think, being away than when I was there. That's interesting, you know, because I was paying more attention and... Uh, no, he allowed me also to get closer and to understand my team a little bit more and and that's the beauty of it and I'm just so grateful and thankful for everyone that is working with me. So you, you've written a book that's going to be published this spring, I think. Yes. In the spring, on the spring, yeah. And did you enjoy writing Rebel Chef? Yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing and, and um, I was really fortunate to be able to uh, have um, um, Emma Brooks that helped me to write it. And the beauty of it, which I found it extremely fascinating, but also allowed me to also look at myself, is we spend hours at talking and writing and uh, together. And uh, she spent a lot of time with me and driving and going to places and hanging out with me. And it was this, I think when you do that, things come out of your head and like you just start to narrative your life. And she was like just taking note or recording me. And it was just, it was fascinating to me, you know, and it's, it's a book about reflection. In, in the book, there are the, the moments that you can identify when you Did first you read it? I read it. Oh, no. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. Did you like it? I loved it. Okay, um, great. I loved it because, I mean, I loved it for so many reasons, but one of them was it made visible some things that had been invisible to me about you. In the book, you're able to find these moments that are pivot moments. Right. And those haven't been obvious in all of the sort of right. the watching. Right. And it just made it all come together. There are these these moments that you gained a little more of who you were and another moment where you gained a little more of who you were. And so the book shows how you accumulated over decades the you that you became and that though there was always the seed of it. And, 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 I, and I hope that it's going to resonate uh, with a lot of people. And um, I just want also to, you know, if, if anyone, a youngster, uh, uh, read the book, it's like you have to look at those moments. You have to be conscious and be curious and, and, and really embrace everything and not taking anything for granted. And you're not going to become you tomorrow. It takes a light, lifetime to become you. But hopefully the little you you become every time is powerful in itself. 
So at the end of each podcast, I ask my guest to... Some question? Yes. Is there a product that you believe is better than the hype? Um, I don't know if it's a product in, in itself, but I will say that um, the, the art of the table is fascinating and beautiful to me. And why is that? I was in France uh, not a long time ago, and I was uh, watching uh, the French TV, which is fascinating to me, and it was uh, on Arte, and they were talking about uh, the story of the forks and also the story of the knife. And the art of the table is so important. And I think we forget about that sometimes. You know, for me, everything needs to be just beautiful and, and thought out and giving the guests that you care. I mean, I love flea market. That's something that people need to think about to go there and just buy things out there. It's the history of things and bring it back to the table or to the house. And the, um, the last question, is there a woman in hospitality who doesn't work for you, who you'd like to give a shout out to, who you want more people to know about? Um, I won't say there is a woman. I think I want to give a shot uh, to all those women out there that are doing some amazing things with food, bringing back the community together. Um, it could be um, women that are cooking for um, homeless people or women that are bringing their community in um, maybe in an area where it's not as uh, luxurious than others. Uh, women that are, you know, having those incredible um, uh, little garden up in the Harlem area, so it's 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 not just one woman. It's all those women that are in that nobody knows, but they doing so much work to their own community to bring people together through food. That's what I want to thank. It's the most beautiful ending to this uh, beautiful podcast. Thank you so much, Dominique, for, thank you for spending me. time with me today. Thank you for all of you listening to this podcast if you enjoy what you've heard please go to wherever you listen to podcasts rate review subscribe and i hope you'll join me again next week for another extraordinary conversation with an extraordinary woman have a great week speaking broadly is powered by simplecast Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.